In sports, no two stories are the same. The Other Pros Podcast takes an in-depth look at the sports industry and the individuals who work in it. Hosts John Ganther and Mike Gambardella interview some of the industry's top coaches, administrators, and athletes. With a combined 30 years of experience working in athletics, Ganther and Gambo offer their perspectives on how sports operate behind the scenes. From coaches to trainers to athletic directors, no titles and no sports are off the table. Without further ado, here's your host, John Ganther. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 9 of the Other Pros Podcast. I am your host, John Ganther. In this episode, Mike and I speak with Daniel Rappaport, a writer for Golf Digest. We talk to him all things golf-related, specifically starting with golf media, um, which he's obviously a member of. Um, We look at the difference between today's um, look at golf media. There's a lot of young, up-and-coming golf media members um, compared to the way it has been um, you know, in the previous 20 to 30 years. Um, some people have referred to it as old man golf. Um, so we kind of look at the differences between uh, those two styles of covering golf. Um, you know, is there any jealousy among older golf media members compared to what he's doing um, now in today's day and age? Um, we also look into his experience as a caddy. Um, he caddied for Matthew Fitzpatrick earlier this year at the AT&T National at Pebble Beach. Um, he proudly boasts that he's one for one as a caddy making the cut. Um, so we look at and look at that in depth, um, what he learned from it. Um, did he have fun and you know, does he want to do it again? Um, we also look at his relationship with Tiger Woods. Um, he has a lot of uh, interactions with him, uh, you know, with his job with Golf Digest. So we talk to him, you know, how he relates and how he interacts with Tiger Woods. Um, we talk about his uh, podcast. He has a podcast with Golf Digest called Local Knowledge um, that looks into uh, stories within the golf industry, kind of a, from a first-person narrative perspective. Um, super interesting stories um, and topics that he covers for that uh, podcast. Um, and then finally, we look at uh, his Masters preview. Um, I'm recording this now. It's November 11th, Wednesday. Um, the Masters kicks off tomorrow. So we talked to him about how the course is going to look, who he likes to you know, win, um, and how the weather may affect uh, Augusta National this weekend. Um, it was a really fun interview. Um, hope you all enjoy. And without further ado, here's our interview with Daniel Rappaport. How are you guys doing? We're good. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining. Uh, Ganther, I forgot to wear my uh, Aaron Hills Masters shirt for the occasion. Oh, my God. That would, shoot, I was going through, I was like, I have Masters gear, and then there's that polo, which is just, oh, God, that would have been perfect. That would have been just the... I, I think we God. got offered that day $300 for a polo shirt at a PGA Tour event, which I didn't think was possible, and somehow he still didn't sell the shirt. Yeah, no, it was it was wild. So a little backstory here, Daniel. My bachelor party was at... Aaron Hills back in two, 2017. Okay, cool. Um, the third round, Saturday round. Um, oh, during the U.S. Open. During the U.S. Open, yeah. yeah so we yeah. went um, the Saturday round, and my, I think it was one of my buddies made, we all wore matching polos. It was the Augusta Green, and then there was a logo of the state of Wisconsin embroidered, and then there was a little flag. So it was just like this, where Aaron Hills is on the state silhouette. Okay. Custom so like, yeah, custom-made polos. So there's like 14 of us all wearing the same polo. And a USGA photographer came up 
he's like, I have to get pictures of this. And we were like, yeah, sure, whatever. So like, he's taking pictures of us outside the entrance. People are like coming up and offering us like $100 each to take the polos off our backs. Yeah, it sounds um, like a pretty sweet shirt. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a whole, uh, it was a whole thing. Um, but yeah, I think we all, we all ended up keeping them because we're like, this is, this is too cool. Yeah, I mean, she, that sounds like a very. I'm surprised that I guess Augusta didn't get, get wind of it. They're usually pretty quick to sue on that sort of thing. Yeah, I know. I was waiting for. I mean, I didn't make them, but my, I was waiting for a cease and desist to be. Oh, cease and desist. They're famous for their cease and desist letters. They sent, they sent them to like uh, Club Pro guy a bunch of times. They're. Uh, they don't let anything go unnoticed. Yeah, I guess we're we're one of the lucky few to, to still have the have the gear and tell the tale. We're not quite important enough. We'll, we'll give it another few weeks, and then maybe we'll get in trouble. Oh my God! Yeah, seriously. I know. Yeah, next next week it'll surface again. Um, but yeah. Anyway, yeah. We'll just uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, so yeah, like I like to start off these podcasts with our guests. You know, just tell us a little about your background. You know, where you went to college previous stops to led you to where you're at right now with the Golf Digest? Yeah, so I went to Northwestern University. Uh, I was in the journalism program there, which is a great program. Yeah. And uh, yeah, got a, as part of the program, they have a, it's basically an externship uh, that you do your junior or senior year, where they kind of set you up at a place and you take a quarter off school and go work there. So I did mine at Sports Illustrated my senior year of, high, of uh, college. Um, did that from January through March. I guess I didn't get enough job, kind of stayed in touch. And I went to work there full-time after college. Um, I was there for just over two years. Um, started in an entry-level position, kind of just blogging, doing a lot of nights and weekends, nothing, nothing fancy. And then kind of elbowed my way into doing some golf coverage when SI sold Golf Magazine in uh, February of 2018, I think it was. Um, so I kind of became like the golf guy over there. And uh, then Golf Digest approached me and said they had this new role that was going to be kind of a hybrid thing, you know, kind of managing our relationship with Tiger and then also covering the tour in general. And uh, I made the switch in October of last year. So just over a year now. And yeah, it's been great. Really happy where I am. And uh, definitely a little different being at a place that's, you know, only golf. But it's actually kind of allowed me to be more of a fan of the other sports and not kind of have to worry about... <laughs> what happened, how we're covering it, if someone's writing on this. So, um, yeah, no, it's been really good. So when Golf Digest approached you about that role, when they said Tiger, were you like, you had me a Tiger, I'm there? <laughs> no, actually. I was a little bit uh, – I was hesitant, to be honest with you, because um, for a few reasons. You know, I, I liked writing – I did a lot of tennis coverage as well when I was at SI, and I love tennis. I love other sports. And, you know, I, I thought of myself as just like a sports writer. I didn't really think of myself necessarily as a golf as a golf writer. So I was nervous on that aspect. And then, yeah, it was just different. Like I, you know, it was it was Sports Illustrated, you know, it's, it's had its struggles for sure. But, you know, when I got there, the thing that was that was made emphasized to me was, you know, we're, we're impartial. We don't do like the sponsored content stuff. We don't do, you know, partnerships. It's really just kind of this beacon of, of impartiality and of, you know, we're going to be the sports people who tell it like it is. And, you know, moving over to a position where I was going to be working um, in, a, in a different role was definitely, um, it was tough for me to kind of wrap my head around. But I realized that, hey, the media landscape is changing. And, you know, it's the, the, this whole notion of, the, you know, the impartial newspaper style journalist who has no voice and no personality and doesn't root for anybody 
Um, it's just not really the way that it's going right now. And, and I kind of realized that this was an unbelievable opportunity to spend a lot of time around maybe the greatest player in the history of the sport um, and travel the world, uh, which I've been able to do. And at the, in the end of the day, it was, uh, it was kind of a no-brainer. But I was, I was a little hesitant at the beginning, for sure. Okay. Now, for you, kind of back in your start, we'll take it even back before, you know, Northwestern days, you know, was golf a big part of you growing up or was that kind of something that just happened to be cultivated through the stops that you've had? No, I always loved golf. Uh, my dad is a big golfer. I grew up playing a lot. Um, I was a good junior. I was a good junior um, in Southern California. Unfortunately, there were a lot of good juniors in Southern California. <laughs> um, not as much in the Northeast, I can tell not, you that much. Yeah, not, not as much in the Northeast. So, uh, yeah, no, I was like, a, you know, I think I got to scratch when I was like 15 or 16. And, you know, I played in a bunch of the junior events and I thought I was going to play division one, high level division one, didn't really work out. I could have likely played a little bit lower level division one, almost certainly division three. Um, but by the time I was 17 or 18, I was a little burnt out on, on tournament golf. Um, it's just a very, it's a very lonely pursuit. Um, I didn't one day, like Daniel, I too hope to be burnt out on tournament <laughs> golf. Um, but yeah, no, I, I played all throughout, all throughout college. Uh, you know, I would take trips with my dad and play all summer. Um, so yeah, golf was always a big part of my life and it was always my favorite sport. You know, it was always what I wanted to cover, but I also, you know, I liked the fact that at SI I could also cover other things. Um, now that's not really happening anymore, but I'm, I'm super happy where I am now because, you know, they don't give me crap for playing golf on weekdays. So you can't really ask for much more from, a, from an employer. And they say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm out of, the, out of the office today. I'm playing in the money game. And they say, okay. So it's pretty, it's pretty good in that sense. I, and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head of, of the other pros here of, you know, we find our way to make sports our life in one way or the other. You know, I think, you know, John is an equipment director, myself as a sports information director, you know, we figured out the ways of, you know, okay, I love sports. How do I make that make me money? And we've all kind of had different ways of getting there. For you, was it always kind of, I want to do sports writing and, and that's going to get me there? Or was it, let me go to Northwestern, let me get my journalism degree and then see where that might take me? Yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of the odd the oddball in, in that I knew what I wanted to do from a very young age. Um, I remember watching, I think it was called, I don't remember the name of the show, but it was it was a show where basically people were trying out to be sports center anchors. Um, mm. God, now the, now the name is, it's something about next. I don't, I don't remember what the name was, but I remember watching that as a six or seven year old and being like, that's, that's the greatest job in the world. You know, you just <laughs> talk about sports and do what other people do for fun and have that, have that be your job. So I knew I wanted to go to Northwestern and go to the journalism school. I thought I wanted to, to do something like this. There was a period of time when I was there. I also, I double majored in political science where I thought, you know, maybe I will uh, go the politics route. I, I actually interned for CNN one summer, but way too stressful for me, man. <laughs> Just way too, <laughs> a lot of bad news and like a lot of angry people. Um, so after you know, that- You I'm, never find any angry people in golf, never. So that, that's <laughs> good, you've made that switch. <laughs> I mean, of course there's angry people, but look, people love golf and there's a lot of joy in it. Um, with politics, it just felt like it was just per perpetually bad news that was making a lot of people really, really angry one side or the other. Um, and that's just not my personality, I don't think. So I, and I didn't like DC. So I kind of figured, all right, no more politics. Then I went back to school, really focused on, on sports. Um, but yeah, I, I knew I wanted to be a sports writer from a pretty young age. 
Yeah, that's a, that's fortunate for you. Cause I know like a lot of us, I don't know. I mean, Mike got into sports information pretty young, I feel like. And before I got into equipment, I was kind of all over the place. I even interned Florida state, you know, in sports information department, that was my first official like internship in sports. So what could have been, but you know, we are where we are. Um, yeah, we're probably better off. You are where you're at. John. Thank <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, seriously. Um, so in your bio, on your Twitter bio, you re, you say that you know, you're one for one in making cuts as a caddy on the PGA Tour. That's a pretty yeah. impressive batting average right there. Um, tell us about that experience, because um, I know you said you went to Northwestern. I know it's where Matt, Matt Fitzpatrick went, so and that's who you caddied for, right? That's right, yeah. Matt and I, um, we've been friends for, for a while now. Wow. Seven, eight, seven years now. Um, it, it's actually funny. So I was trying to walk onto the team. They were pretty good. Um, and they only had one spot open. And I remember when I was a senior in like the fall, I sent the coach my stuff being like, hey, I apply, you know, early decision. I'm not looking for like a scholarship. I realize that's not realistic, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, well, we have a commitment from this kid, Matt Fitzpatrick. And so I looked up and I was like, oh, he was pretty good. But, you know, I know maybe this was junior year. Yeah, it was junior year when I would have when I would have sent him my stuff. And he was like, oh, we have this commitment. Then I remember he won the British boys that summer. <laughs> And I was like, all right, he's really he's, good. He's good. <laughs> and, then, and, then I remember, and then I remember he qualified for the British Open, um, like not by winning an amateur event. Like he went to the qualifier and beat all the pros. So I was like, okay, he's really good. Yeah. And then he was low am at that British Open. And I was like, wow, this, he's much better than I am. He keeps getting and better that, and better. <laughs> yeah, you know, literally, he keeps getting better and better. And then he freaking won the USAM that summer. And he became the number one amateur in the world. And so that's when I knew that it wasn't likely that I was going to play on Northwestern <laughs> golf if they had one spot and it was me for Spitz. So I kind of sought him out when, when, uh, when we got to school, we became friends pretty quickly. He only spent one, one quarter there. So he was only there from September, you know, through, through Christmas break. Um, but we kept in touch. And then uh, once he got on the PGA Tour, we started seeing each other more and more because I'd be covering events and he would be at the events, playing in the events. Um, and then, yeah, we kind of joked about the caddying stuff because um, obviously I love golf and I love talking about golf. And, and uh, yeah, one day he just said, hey, do you want to caddy for me in the AT&T with at Pebble Beach? Because I guess his caddy, apparently AT&T is like the, the caddy's least favorite event to, to caddy because three different courses so it's like it's kind of weird in that sense it's, it tends to be cold it's like in february in pebble beach um and it's slow because you're playing with the amateurs so he didn't want to fly from england all the way to the u.s to caddy that one event and go back so i said absolutely um so i caddy formed this year i think it was in either january or february at the 18t um made the cut didn't have a great finish but made the cut and uh it was an, a pretty incredible experience and i i think i'm gonna get the chance to do it again so um, that's a nice little side hustle. Yeah, geez. If you can do it once a year, that'll be, you know, especially if you finish, it's pretty high. It's a good paycheck for you. Yeah, absolutely. And he was very generous and, and paid me as though I was full-time, which which was very nice because, you know, a lot of these caddies get paid a weekly salary to kind of offset the bad weeks. Um, but, I, you know, I, it was only one week for me. There were not going to be any bad weeks. So for him to give me, you know, the weekly salary as well as a percentage of the paycheck was, was very nice. Yeah. I've actually, I read Rick Riley's book on caddying. He wrote, you know, he caddied for a bunch of famous people, everyone from yeah. like Donald, Donald Trump to John Daly. And he ended up doing it for like one round or like a practice round or something. And he said that it was just, you know, 
it's just hard. You know, you're carrying around a bag that weighs, you know, 30, 40 pounds. You know, there's all these rules you got to know. Were there the caddies in your group? Did they help you throughout the week with some of the, you know, policies and stuff like that? Yeah. So the way it works is it's kind of strange because usually in the normal PGA Tour event, you'll be playing three guys uh, in the first two rounds typically, and then it'll change. Um, this one, because there's three rounds before the cut and because there's amateurs, there's only you and one, you're, you're, there's two pros and two amateurs for three rounds. So we played with Matt Kuchar was the other pro in our group for the first three rounds. And his caddy, who they actually just broke up recently, was this guy, John Wood, who now caddies for Cameron Champ, who's one of the nicest guys out there. And he's, he was also from California like myself, so we had that in common. And he, he's been out there since 97, I think, so 20, 23 years. Um, and he helped me a lot. He did help me a lot. But I will say, like, just from going to a lot of tournaments and being a good player myself, like I had a pretty good idea, you know, of what to do. Like it, it wasn't like I was some Joe Schmo that you're plucking off the street and, you know, putting a bag on his shoulders. I knew where to stand. I knew what to say. I knew, you know, what the, I kind of had to learn the yardage book. But after the practice round, I figured out the yardage book. It's more just like little things. Like if your guy is on the green and the other guy's hitting from a bunker in the fairway and then misses the green again, you're supposed to go rake his bunker to speed up play so he doesn't have to rake it and go. Like, just little things like that that you don't realize. But, um, no, John was very, very uh, helpful. And then they actually tied after three rounds, so he played with Kuchar again on Sunday. So it was a lot of Matt Kuchar uh, that week. <laughs> well, you know, if Happy Gilmore can pull the guy out of the parking lot, I'm sure <laughs> you were just great for fits that weekend. Seriously. What do you think was probably the best piece of advice you gave him through that tournament? Was there a point where you were like, you know, maybe you should, you know, let's use the seven here, <laughs> maybe not the six? Yeah, you know? no, you wouldn't think there was, but there, there was one. Um, I only kind of stepped in and – I wouldn't say overruled, but said, I don't think that's the play. It happened twice. It happened once on Saturday at Monterey Peninsula. I can't remember what hole it was. I want to say six or seven. He wanted to hit three wood. And I, and I was like, no, if you, because if you pull this, it's going in the bunker. And if you, if you hit it good, there's not that much advantage. Let's hit, he has a seven wood. It's like, let's hit seven wood just in case you tug it a little bit and we'll be short. And he ended up hitting seven wood, tugged it, and it finished like three yards short of the bunker. So he was like, great work there, great work there. The other time was the fourth hole at Pebble Beach on Sunday. He wanted to hit driver, and I did not understand why. And I said, can you explain this to me? And he said, I just, you know what, I just, with all due respect, like I'm hitting driver. And he hit driver, and he hit it in the bunker, and he made bogey on a birdie hole. So, you know, maybe he should have listened to me a little more. Make sure that Matt doesn't listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've, told, I've told him that many times before. He's an idiot for hitting driver on four. We're usually idiots for hitting driver anytime. So we'll, we'll give him a pass on one hole. Yeah. Yeah. No, he hits it really straight too. So he, he, he just hit a bad shot. And like, that's the thing about caddying. Like if the guy hits a bad shot, it doesn't really matter what happens. If he hits a good shot, then he looks like a genius no matter what. So. The life and times and trials and tribulations of caddying. Yes, that's right. Now, is it true that there was a shack that everyone got to afterwards of all the caddies that they just kind of hung out at? Or am I mix, mixing up a movie right now? It might be, it might be a movie. <laughs> no, there definitely is sort of like a, I don't know if I'll say clicky atmosphere, but like they're all friends with each other. Um, I wasn't friends with them. Um, I'm, you know, just 
I'm not a, not a full-time guy. The new, the new guy. Yeah. The new guy, yeah. So, you're, you're, yeah. You're the pledge for the week. Yeah, yeah and my, <laughs> actually, it's funny. My, my media credential actually got me in more places than any <laughs> credential would have. You got the good food, yeah. Yeah, no, literally. So, like, Matt got me, like, some, some pass to go into player dining where caddies don't usually get to go. So, yeah, I got the good life that week. See, there's the plug for becoming a media relations director than the caddy. Yes, that's but right. I, <laughs> but again, I still think I might take that trade, but I think grass is always greener, especially at Pebble Beach, apparently. Yeah, it was, it was, a, pretty, it was a pretty special week, and like weather was pretty perfect, and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. So if we want to switch gears a little bit from caddying to actually playing, obviously this uh, year has been different than anything else. Obviously the current climate that we're in and, and COVID and no fans and travel and, you know, guys kind of deciding when and when they're not going to play. What's kind of been your overview of kind of 2020 and professional golf thus far? Oof, that's a pretty, pretty big question. Um, <laughs> I was skeptical for sure uh, when they were going to come back, being the first ones to come back. Um, it was before basketball, it was before, you know, it was before any other sport, really. So we, we, we all just had no idea what that would look like. Um, I think, look, how, however you feel about the virus, however you feel about the, the sort of existential notion of playing golf during a pandemic, as far as like an operation standpoint, it can't, it can't be viewed as anything but a success. Um, most of the guys have been healthy enough to play uh, in the big tournaments. The U.S. Open, I think Scheffler was missing. That was kind of the only time where a really big-name player who had potentially a chance to win couldn't play because of the virus. Um, the guys who have gotten the virus have seemed to have isolated, gotten over it, and got back playing again. Um, so I think from a COVID standpoint, the Tour deserves a lot of credit for kind of sticking their neck out there as being the first one and then having it be – a, a pretty successful endeavor um, in the end. Uh, but as, as, yeah, as far as the rhythm of tournaments go, it's been very strange. Um, I, strange, but in a good way. Like, I don't know, the, the, other, the other sports, like baseball, basketball, just didn't really feel real for whatever reason, especially baseball, because they only played, you know, less than half the season. Um, but golf has felt very real. Like, despite there being no fans, it really has felt like, a, a, you know, the Dodgers winning, like that, for me, has an asterisk, but you know, Colin Morikawa winning the PGA doesn't. So it, it's felt pretty normal. Uh, this this week is going to be this week's going to be the most different for sure. Um, just because you know you've heard it a million times, but the the roars and the, the echoes through the pine. I mean, it's such a huge part of Augusta. Um, and I think I heard Rory McIlroy say it's going to be like playing the 12th hole 18 times, which I thought was really, really insightful because if you remember the 12th hole, the patrons can't get behind the green. And so it's like this kind of sanctuary where there's all this chaos and then the camera shows and there's no one there. It's going to be like that the whole week. And so I think it's going to be, it's going to be very strange. And I wonder if this week will actually feel different because the other ones haven't. And it's obviously very different. You know, we're not talking waste management here, but just anything really when fans aren't allowed to be there. Do you think that that's a positive for all golfers? Is it a negative for some? Like, obviously, there's just less distractions, less other things to worry about, to think about. Is that, you know, why maybe we see some better scores? Or are there some guys that just want the consistency of, you know, no, PGA Golf has fans and that should be there? I think it's helped the younger guys for sure. I think it's helped. You think of Colin Morikawa. 
okay, this guy, when he won the PGA, he, he's one year out of school. Um, and it's his first, it's only his second major start. And it's his first time with the lead coming down the stretch in the major. And there were no fans there. So I know that it's big and, he, and you know, it's, it's a huge tournament, but it doesn't feel as big when there aren't fans there. And I, it feels like a college tournament. That's what it feels like. I mean, if you've been to a college golf tournament or like a mini tour event, you know, it's like there's, you know, there's like, it's not that there's no one there. I mean, down the stretch, there'll be, you know, 40 or 50 people if it's a big tournament watching, watching the finish. Um, but it's not 30,000, you know, at the Masters. Everyone's saying, you can do it, you can do it. So I definitely think it helps the younger guys. Um, close the deal and I think it you know Tiger I think it, it it's been a uh it's been a bit of a disadvantage for him and I think he would he would agree because he feeds off the crowd so much um they, they give him energy and they give him belief and 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 also it's just like it everyone else knows when Tiger makes a birdie when there's fans there if you if you re-watch last year's Masters my one of my favorite clips from the from the entire broadcast was they showed a replay of I think it was Kepka was on the 17th tee when Tiger was hitting his approach shot into 16. And he had to back off because the crowd went absolutely nuts. And he kind of gives this look like, whoa, like that was really loud. And, they all, and he kind of looks to see how oh, did it go in, you know, what happened. Yeah. They, they, there's a presence there when the uh, Tiger has more of a presence when fans are there. And I think it's going to be, um, it's going to be a bit of a disadvantage for him. Uh, but look, I mean, the Masters, he shouldn't need any, any sort of fan uh, support to get himself up for the Masters. So I think he'll be just fine as, as far as like energy calls go. Maybe Tiger Woods doesn't need any extra motivation and I'll buy that one. You know, I, I think you said helping the younger guys, definitely maybe not helping some of the older guys where they need it. If the Dodgers get an asterisk for this year, does the Masters champ get an asterisk for this year? I got to call I you on that one. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't think so, but I, I think we can't really see what it's going to be like until it happens it might feel really weird look they're doing threesomes off both sides like that's that doesn't happen um it happened last year in the final round and that was weird, weird. so that'll be that'll be that'll be weird again um yeah it's definitely be different but you know we, we no one really knows and that's the thing about the matchers i think everyone's like oh everyone's making all these predictions what's the course going to play like what's the weather going to be like well we have no idea we just have no idea because they're more secretive than than fort knox with how they set up the golf course and what the and what the conditions are like. And, and then there's the weather, you know, if it, if it's pouring rain, then it's not going to play how anyone thought it was going to be. So all these people are trying to forecast exactly how the course is going to play and who it's going to, who it's going to favor. We just don't have any clue. Yeah. I mean, we all know, I mean, we never, in our lifetimes, we've never seen a masters in November. Um, but based off, you know, not knowing what we know, who do you, who do you think uh, is a favorite or are there a couple of favorites uh, for next weekend, you know, what do you think the chances of Tiger repeating, or is it going to be kind of someone, a young gun, gunning for their first uh, green jacket? Again, really tough to predict. Um, I, I don't know if Tiger will win. His game just it hasn't been in really good shape, if we're being honest. I mean, if you look at his at his results going into last year's Masters, um, he played pretty well in the beginning of the year. He, I think he finished 15th at Riviera. I think he was like ninth or something in that region at Torrey Pines. Um, he finished 30th at the players, I think, but that was because he made like a 15 or he made like a seven on the part on uh, 17 on, on either Thursday or Friday. Um, and, and he beat Rory in the match play coming in. So like he was playing well, he was hitting the ball well, but, and this is a big, but 
Tiger throughout his career has found a way to be competitive at the Masters, even when he has nothing. Like, I, I think 2015 was the year where he finished 17th, and that was, like, the only event he made the cut in. All, you know, like, he, there's something about Augusta and something about that course. I mean, look at all the Champions Tour guys who were able to compete there every single year. Um, Bernard Langer makes the cut every year. Fred Couples missed it last year, but, you know, he was a top 20 machine before. It's not like these guys could compete on the PJ Tour week in, week out, but Augusta asks more specific questions than any other golf course, and there's more local knowledge there than any other course. Um, so I think he'll be competitive. Whether he wins will, remains to see. I mean, my eyes on Bryson, I, I, I just, there's been so much said about how he's going to play the course and, and what it's going to look like. Um, I'm just so curious to see what, what happens, how it plays out, because it feels like the only thing that would really move the needle as far as any sort of rollback goes is Bryson winning this by multiple shots and doing what he did at Wingfoot again. Because it's one thing to do at Wingfoot. It's another thing, you know, you do it at Augusta, which is the game's number one cathedral. And I think that, will, that, that might change things. But um, I like Bryson. I really like DJ. I mean, I, I'm curious to see how he plays today, but it feels like he was the best player in the world before he got COVID. And I feel like everyone's kind of off him now because there's a big question mark. Um, and to be honest, I haven't checked how he's playing today, if he's even started. So he could be six over par today and I could sound like an idiot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope that he's not. I'll scrub uh, that. Don't worry. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you're looking for DJ's a guy who's always there um, at the Masters. I think he has five straight top tens. People forget, you know, he missed a putt on 18 last year when he got into a playoff. I really like DJ, but that could be said for every major. But yeah, so so I think DJ would be the guy that I would that I would circle. It's funny you led off with Bryson and and we've discussed him at length a little bit, John and I. And I think back two years ago and I took a job at the American Athletic Conference to be their men's basketball comms director. They said, You're also gonna cover golf. So I walk into my office and there's just this picture of this skinny kid with the cap on holding the American trophy at SMU and it's Bryson DeChambeau. And I'm like, well, who is that? I don't understand. And I start doing the research and I cover SMU as they win with Mac Meisner last year. And now I remember that photo vividly on my wall. And now to look at what Bryson is now and somehow he has doubled himself. He is oh, yeah. just a massive human being. He's, he's used COVID to his advantage and now playing differently. The, the closest thing you can say, and this will be the second ref, reference, you know, is Happy Gilmore. He is just bombing this thing away. He's cutting corners. He's making golf, quote unquote, easy. What, what do you see from this guy? Is this sustainable? Is this going to piss people off? Is this how golf should be played? Or is this just something different is this a john daly that you know a thing people get excited about because they haven't seen it before well the the, the answer to one of the things you said is it's already pissing people off <laughs> there's already a lot of a lot of people um and fitz made some comments you know that said that hey this isn't this isn't how golf is supposed to be played this is making a bit of a mockery of the game um but i think it's important to draw a distinction between complaints about what Bryson is doing and complaints about Bryson himself. Look, Bryson is taking advantage of the rules as they stand. Fair play to him. You know, like there's rules and he's, he's operating within them and he's, he's not breaking any rules. And, but he's, ex, he's exploiting, I don't know if loophole is the right word, but he's kind of pushing the rules. And he's just having, he's just having the, uh, the gall to do what no one else. You know, there used to be this kind of notion that you hit the ball far enough. It was like, oh, you know, Dustin Johnson or Rory McIlroy, they don't need to work on hitting it farther because they hit it far enough. 
and they, they you know, need to work on hitting it straighter because they have all the distance they need. Well, Bryson said, why, why is that far enough? You know, why, why can't we push it even further? And it feels like no one really had the balls to do that before he did. And he said, look, I'm going to try to hit it 360, 370 yards. And everyone thought, oh, well, that, that's not a thing. I hit it far enough. And, but, but all the data um, and all the numbers show that closer to the hole is better. You know, even if closer to the hole is in the rough, closer is better. You know, there used to be this conventional wisdom on par fives and you lay up to your number and, and hit it in the fairway and you know, you'll make par at worst. And it was sort of this conservative way of, of going around the golf course. And it was about, it was basically about, you know, kind of bogey avoidance, like let's make a bunch of pars and so, but these guys aren't scared of bogeys now because they can make so many birdies playing aggressively. Um, so do I think it's sustainable? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, he's probably at some sort of injury risk, but, but it's, other, it's not like he's hitting it miles past everybody else. I mean, if you watch Matt Wolf play, he hits it really, really far too. And I think the distance part is if nothing changes, the guys are going to continue to do this. It's a matter of whether they change something. And I actually think they will. I don't know when it will happen, but I think eventually there will be a rollback of the golf ball. Um, because the other option is, I mean, there's, there's three things. You change the golf ball, you, uh, you leave everything as is, or you lengthen the courses. Lengthening the courses is just not feasible from a land perspective. Um, leaving it as is, I, I, I don't think, it was kind of cool to watch at Wingfoot. I don't think that people are going to be super um, interested in watching a guy just mash driver and hit wedges all day um, going forward. So I think that believes the only option is to eventually do something, which I think they will. Yeah, I listened to a, I listened to a podcast earlier this summer um, with Brandel Shambly, and I think he was on the Four Play podcast. And he was talking about how, Bryson, his whole transformation was just like an incredibly risky career move because he was like a top 30 golfer in the world, I think, at the time before, you know, the COVID happened. Um, and he puts on all this weight and all this strength, and it's kind of like you're really making a really comfortable career for yourself as a top 25 golfer in the world. Why change everything overnight, basically, to try and be like the number one golfer in the world? Because it's a huge risk. Like, he could just start hitting the ball a mile, but it could be really erratic, and then, like, where do you go from there? Do you want to lose all that weight that you just put on and all that strength and then kind of go back? Um, so that was kind of an interesting perspective that I heard on him. Yeah, I, there's, there's plenty of stories about guys. Luke Donald comes to mind as someone who was playing really good golf, decided to try and get longer, um, and, it, and it backfired. And, they, you know, they started hitting it crooked. But that's, that's why Bryson does deserve credit. I mean, has he, is he hitting fewer fairways? I think so, but not by that much. You know, and that's, that's what it is, like – and another thing that, that gets lost about his performance at Wingfoot is, did he hit under 50% of his fairways for the week? Yes, but he actually hit more fairways than the average that week. Everyone was missing fairways. So he's hitting it far. He's hitting it a little bit more crooked, but not that much more crooked. Um, and yeah, he did take a risk, but clearly he's a guy who was never satisfied. You know, he doesn't seem like the guy who's going to be, oh, you know, I'll win seven events and maybe steal a major one time and that'll be my career. He's obviously a very mo motivated individual who wants to get to the top. And, and I think he deserves credit on a personal level for being willing to take that professional risk. Pissing off more people in golf, what Bryson DeChambeau is doing, or if I can do this hoodie while I play or not. <laughs> it feels like the hoodie stuff is like, I don't know if anyone's actually upset. It feels like everyone's like, oh, why is everyone upset about the hoodie? And I'm looking around, I'm like, who's, who's upset? Like, who's really upset? You, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. It feels like it's one people being like, why are we worried about a hoodie? But like, no one's actually worried about the hoodie. The only thing I hear about the hoodie is people saying, why are we worried about the hoodie? Well, I'm not worried about the hoodie. I don't see anyone else who's worried about the hoodie. So I think that's just kind of like, 
I don't really think that's a real. real that's uh, the world we live in of social media, where people can make stories when they decide it's a story, whether they're on a media contingent or not. Yeah, it's like if you look, if you were looking up tweets about hoodies, could you find some people saying negative things? Yes, and could you put that into a story and make it look like it was half the people feeling this way? Yeah, but it's just, I don't think anyone really gives a shit. But I will say this. I don't think anyone will wear a hoodie at Augusta. Maybe Eric Van Ryan, but that's about it. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that action. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. Actually, I'll, no. I'll, no. Take Eric Van Roy, I'll take Eric Van Roy wearing a hoodie. You get any, any other person wearing a hoodie. I get the field. No, yeah, Mike gets the field. Well, so we talked about, a little bit about Tiger at the start, and obviously that's such a huge draw and, you know, John mentioned, you know, a, a, a fantastic opportunity that, you know, very few, if any people in this, in this country, in this world get to do. And um, for you now having this opportunity, you know, it, it essentially is, you know, if you had unfettered access to, to Michael Jordan, you know, and, and get to, you know, cover him and be able to have this opportunity. What's it like for you? Um, is there something that you wish was a little bit different about it? And is there, you know, something that, you know, you can kind of point to to say why this is so special. Not my, can't get myself in any trouble here. Um, <laughs> it's definitely, there's a lot of pinch yourself moments. Um, I will say that. Um, he calls me D as a nickname, which is pretty cool. So anytime he says, hey, D, I definitely kind of think like, wow, if, you know, if eight-year-old me could see, you know, because I'm only 25. So, so I, you know, I grew up with Tiger like that. That was everything. So if, if eight year old me, you know, knew that I was walking by and saying hello to Tiger Woods, they'd be pretty special. Um, you know, maybe I wish he played a little bit more just cause you know, it's, it's kind of few and far between. Um, sometimes it feels like it's, you know, we'll go, he'll play and kind of we'll have interactions at the tournaments and then he'll go a month without playing. But obviously I understand that, you know, with him, it's this push and pull between getting enough reps and, and, and staying healthy and staying healthy is going to win that battle 10 times out of 10. Um, it, and, 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 you know, Tiger's been nothing but great to me. And I, I you know, I, I do realize that like he, this is a different version of him and, you know, all the other writers have made it clear to me that, you know, this, it never used to be this way. And, you know, he never would have given you this access in the past or whatever, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a believer in, in treating people as, as they've treated you and, and Tiger's been nothing but good to me. And so I, I don't, I understand that it was likely different in the past and the way that he dealt with media and stuff. But in my personal experience, he's been nothing but gracious and nothing but, but friendly. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been very cool. Very, very cool. I mean, I, it, it's sometimes it gets tough and if he's not playing well, you know, it's, it's, it's slog because, you know, I watch all the rounds and I write stories about all the rounds. So it can be, it can be hard to make an, you know, 74 after you know, on the third round when you just made the cut seem interesting, but all in all, like you said, not, not something that a lot of people get an opportunity to, uh, to do in their life. After that 75, it quickly goes from Hey D to hello, Daniel, and you know, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, it's, it's, it's definitely every time he says, Hey D, I, I text my girlfriend, like, he just called me D. He just called me D. And she's like, <laughs> She's like, okay, it's cool. It's like, okay, you're dating me, by the way. Yeah, she's exactly. <laughs> just for the record. She, she's like, yeah, I mean, like, it's cool. You know, it's cool. But like, I, you don't need to text me every time that text you by your name. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, some of the older writers and people who cover the game are, you know, 
that Tiger gives you a lot of access that he hadn't done in the past. Do you feel that, I know it's been kind of mentioned on social media, quote unquote, old man golf. Um, Or do you feel like some of them are kind of jealous of your access to him because, you know, they, they worked, you know, 20, 25 years ago when Tiger was first coming up and they were trying to cover him and he was more private than he is now. Um, I don't know if jealous is the right word. I mean, I think a lot of them understand that it's just, changed a lot and they wanted someone young in my position they, they I, you know I don't think that they were looking for someone who's been on the job for 20 or 30 years um but you know I, that whole thing was interesting for me that whole you know, it was it really kind of blew up at the president's cup last year with you know the bar stool versus the quote-unquote old man media because I feel like I kind of exist in the middle like obviously as far as age goes I'm 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 I'm, I'm younger significantly younger than the bar stool guys I think Riggs is like 33 um I don't know how old the other ones are. Uh, I think they might be a little bit younger, um, but I'm 25. So from that standpoint, I'm firmly in sort of the younger crowd, but like I do write, you know, I write articles and I write for a magazine, which is kind of what the older crowd do. So I feel like I do kind of occupy this weird space where, and I get along with both of them. I get along with the Barstool guys and I think what they're doing is awesome for the game. Um, I'm a big fan. Um, I don't listen to the podcast myself, but I think what they're doing is, is really, really good. I mean, it's just, and if, if, if you're against what, what they're doing and the audience that they're building, then that sounds like a you problem. And then, or, you know, because they're, what they're doing, I think is very good for golf and, and what Barcelona is doing for, for sports in general, I think is a very good thing. Um, but I also get along with the, with the older guys and they've been nice to me because I think I've been nice to them. Um, you know, I don't think they're, they're bitter, um, as bitter as they've been made out to be. It's, it's more that, you know, when you call them out on, on, on stuff that is or isn't valid, that's just, just calling someone out, you know, it's human nature to get defensive. So I've tried to kind of be as vanilla as possible, stay out of any sort of arguments, not try and piss anybody off because I am a younger guy coming into a room full of a lot of older guys speak when spoken to be respectful. And I've had no problems. You hit on a great point and we've had the opportunity to interview some other writers as well for this podcast. And, and, something and I don't know if it's just Ganther picking the right guests and just having genuine just good people but it, you you said something that was said as well it's treat people like treat people you, you're nice to them they'll be nice to you I think it's something that's sometimes lost in communications sometimes something that's clearly lost in today's political aspects you know have you felt that that's kind of been you know your motto with something that's helped you get this far or just you know, is that just philosophical and that everyone should kind of have that mindset? Yeah, I mean, I think looking at it as a way to advance your career is a little bit cynical. Um, but no, I mean, look, like I just, like you said, treat people as people. I think because of social media and, and Twitter has sort of been like, okay, if you have this many Twitter followers, then you're more important than this person who has this many Twitter followers. Like it's just a horrible and really toxic way to look at, to look at life um, and to look at your profession, um, to view Twitter followers or, or Instagram followers or, you know, podcast charts or whatever it is as, as a, a ranking, it kind of reminds me of the, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Black Mirror um, on Netflix. It's like a show about dystopian technology stuff. And there's an episode about um, this app in the future where everyone has a score, you know, like you're 5.4 and 5.4s don't talk to 4.3s. And like, I think a lot of times people look at their followers as that score, as a, you know, a stamp of approval. This is how important you are. But it's just about treating people as people. And I found that that's actually really helped me a lot. Um, not talking down to people is important, but also not, not talking up to people is important, if that makes sense. Like, I think one of the things that Tiger 
likes about me is that like I'll give him shit sometimes and it's kind of crazy to say but like you know if he's wearing something goofy then I'll make a comment about he's wearing something goofy or that's enough D yeah yeah <laughs> and, and I think that's, that's another thing like when I've when I've spoken to pros you know I think a lot of these writers they laugh at all their jokes you know and they they that you can just tell they're kissing ass you know and I think it's important to just make someone feel like they're talking to another human being and you can see it they have these a lot of these guys have this exterior where they've had media training or I don't know if you know they've had training or they just have this kind of they have this speed where when they talk to the media they they get yeah you know I think I played really well today you know just trying to find my spots but then when you can make a joke or you can make them laugh you can sometimes literally see that front kind of crumbling and the human being coming out and I think as a journalist um and as a writer and as you know someone in this industry it's that's really important making people feel comfortable making making people feel like it's not such a stilted conversation making them feel like they don't have to watch all of their words uh, is super important as a media relations guy i'm happy and apologetic at the same time that i hear that they still have their walls up five ten years not later after not they've left and, and also for the record, I am still, we're all equal here, but I'm still very jealous of your 10,000 extra Twitter followers and your blue check mark. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. The, bl the blue check mark brigade. Yep. Does not matter. <laughs> it doesn't, I don't get paid by Twitter followers. That's for sure. I mean, Mike, apparently, you know, you just wake up one morning and you have the blue check mark. I've heard that from other people. You know, I don't know. There's, there's is, no application process. Yeah. That is what happened. I was really hungover and I woke up. <laughs> awesome. I will say that. <laughs> Get so we, we figured out the perfect hangover cure here on the podcast. You just get a blue check. And you get a blue check. Mark. Yeah, just figure it out. Right, well, those are life goals right now, Mike. They've always been life goals, John. I don't think they're happening, but they'll still stay life goal. Um, yeah, so you talked about social media. Um, you have your own podcast, you know, Local Knowledge with Golf Digest. Um, you know, kind of how did that come about? Was that your idea? Was that the magazine pitching it to you? You know, how did that kind of come about? Uh, it was my idea. Um, and it's not just mine. There's two other, two other guys who host two other, no, one, one guy and one woman, um, who hosts other episodes, but it was, I will take some deal of credit. Um, so we had a podcast before that was just called the golf digest podcast. That was, you know, a podcast where we interviewed people in the golf industry and, um, same same model as a lot of different podcasts in the golf world and to be honest we weren't first or second or third in that space and we felt like it was a bit stale and we weren't really getting any traction and so we kind of took a step back took a step back and said okay how can we how can we do this how can we add some life to this podcast how can we lean on our strengths as an organization and we said what are our strengths well our strengths are in-depth storytelling in golf we have a, you know if you look at our history we have a lot of incredible writers who have written for golf digest a lot of incredible stories that have been told that yes are about golf but also just interesting in general and so we thought well, how do we convert that to an audio format so i said why don't we do something that's kind of in the mold of of the daily the new york times the daily but a little bit more in depth and because we're not going to be doing it every day it's once once every two weeks where we make kind of little documentary style narrative podcasts that are scripted about golf where we tell stories in an audio format that haven't been told before and because we, we didn't really see anybody else doing that in golf and there are a ton of golf podcasts but most of them like i said are, are the are the same format as we were doing before interview a guest a pj tour player or a coach or you know some announcer and have some interview um and there's a lot of them that are kind of instructional you know you'll have a a, a teaching pro do a podcast but we didn't feel like there was any storytelling podcasts in golf and so we thought this was a great avenue for us 
And uh, yeah, it's been going really well. The, the reader, the listenership, I don't know if that's the right word, more listeners than before. Um, and we feel like we're telling good stories. So yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I was, that's another thing, you know, we kind of go back to the, t- the tiger aspect and whether I was excited or nervous about that. I was nervous that I was going to kind of get pigeonholed into just doing tiger stuff. But having something like local knowledge being on my plate um, has been has been really good to be able to pursue stuff outside of that of that scope. Yeah, that was. Uh, I listened to an episode recently where you guys talked with uh, Joel Damon on the tour, um, and you talked oh, yeah, about but... like the expenses and everything, and how much money you end up making, you know. And he broke it down, and it was fascinating. I think I forget what tournament he played in, but he, you know, it was a two hundred thousand dollar check, and then you know you got to pay these coaches travel, and then let's not forget taxes, like. You walk away all of a sudden. You only walk away with like sixty thousand of that two hundred thousand after expenses are paid, which was just wild. Yeah, they have a. I mean, they do make a ton of money, but they also pay a lot of people. So, still, I don't think anyone's crying for for. Yeah, people. not crying, but yeah, it's it's, a, it's just a little different. Yeah. No, it, it is. It is different, and it's. We find that people, you know, people doesn't have to be the story doesn't have to be groundbreaking. It doesn't have to, you know, crack open a case. But people just want to be entertained, and so. If you can, are if you, are you not entertained? Yeah, yes. Exactly. <laughs> if you can tell them a story in you know thirty minutes, enough time for them to drive to work. You know, we thought that was something that that would resonate. It's doing pretty well so far. It's worked on me, so I appreciate. It. Keep I, up the good work. <laughs> I appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, um, I just have I have a couple just quick questions here, and we'll we'll get you out of here. We certainly appreciate the time. Um, so first off, quick question: you know, favorite course you've ever played ever? It can be here in America. It can be internationally. Uh, what's your favorite? Um, I will say Cypress. Cypress Point. Yeah, I've heard that. Heard that. Heard that was a good one. Yeah, I played that. I played that when I was sixteen or seventeen. My dad knew somebody. That was yeah. That was fun. Not bad. Um, what did uh? Would you would you yeah, would you shoot there? I shoot. I don't remember what I shot, but I do have a good story about that hole. The ninth hole there is a drivable par four. Um, and we played it on a super foggy day, or at least it was foggy in the morning. I think it cleared up in the end. And so the, the caddy's like, oh, hit driver, hit driver. And I'm like, okay. So I hit driver, and I, I hit it pretty good, but I kind of lose it into the fog. And caddy looks at me and says, that's going to be good. And I'm like, oh. He's like, no, that's, that's going to be really, really good. So we get up there, and the pin's in the back. And the, the back of the green kind of slopes back, back to front. The ball was this far above the hole. So it had, it had, and the pitch mark was kind of on the front left of the green. So it had rolled up the slope, come back down, and was like two inches short from being a hole in, I have no holes in one in my life. So it was two, even on a part, so it was two revolutions short of from acing the ninth hole at Cypress Point, which would have been an all time story. but I just kicked it in for Eagle. Now no one cares. So. Yeah, it's an Eagle. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, yeah, at that point, at that point, if you had made that, you take your clubs and you're like, dad, I'll be in the car. I'm yeah. tired. I'm not playing college. This is it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it would have been really, really special. That's for sure. Yeah. I'll say, well, yeah, that's a, that's a good takeaway from that trip. Yeah. Um, what's the best round slash score you've ever had? And I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be the lowest number or it could yeah. be just like a memorable round on a tough course. Yeah. Um, the best, best shot score I ever shot in competition, which is only kind of the only thing that really counts. I shot 68 in one tournament once, which was good. Um, yeah. Um, tell me what that's like. That's okay. <laughs> course, wasn't, course wasn't that hard, but it was good. Um, the best round I ever played was um, I was on a golf trip with my dad once. Actually, 
around this area in New York. And he left, he, I mean, we, we played one course on Friday and he left the club. We left the clubs there is the long story short. We, we left the golf course without the club. So we went to the course we were playing the next day, which was called Garden City, which is like a, you know, top hundred course. Um, and so we played with rental clubs and it was pouring rain and I had no golf shoes because uh, my golf shoes were in my bag and I shot even far. So I think that was probably <laughs> the, best, the best round of golf I've played all things considered like memorability wise. All right. Yeah. That's, uh, that's like your John Daly round. Just wake up, you know, drive yeah, exactly. 12 hours for the night and win a crooked yeah. stick back smoke in 91. A, smoke a couple cigs, drink some Diet yeah. Cokes and ready to go. Oh, that's awesome. So you said favorite course. What do you think for you most underrated course? Hmm. That's a great question. Most underrated course. I'll say um, Spyglass. It's rated. It's rated. It's rated pretty high. But I just saw. Yeah. A, I just saw a golf magazine list that where it wasn't in the top hundred, which I thought was crazy. Um, I think Spyglass is one of the twenty best golf courses in the country that I've played. Um, just a phenomenal, phenomenal golf course that weaves, you know, the first five holes on the water and then you turn into the trees. Um, I think it's one of the best courses in the country and it doesn't always get rated as such. So I'll say Spyglass. Um, and then of course, what's like the top dream course that you want to play? Is it Augusta? Uh, Augusta would be nice for sure. I will say, um, we'll, we'll do something different. I would like to play um there's a new course that opened in new zealand called tari Edi that i really want to play i've never been to new zealand and i think that would be an incredible place to go um because playing that golf course would mean i'd be in new zealand and i think it i think it's like number two or number three on our list of courses outside the u.s so i'll say tari Edi is, is the course i would most want to play all right we got a new zealand new zealand golf plug on the podcast all right there didn't think go. we'd go there but i love it there you, go. You, you can get the plugs. You just can't get into the country right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. It might be a while before they let us in, but yeah, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, the way I usually like to wrap these up, uh, kind of finding the, the other pros, obviously, you know, it's, we're not professional athletes. You know, we found our ways to work professionally in this industry, which you have done. I think you're a, a fantastic example of someone, you know, a, a quarter of the way through life has able to find, you know, what some would quote unquote, a, a dream job. Um, just piece of advice for, you know, the kids now, like either looking at college or trying to make a big decision, you know, best piece of advice to give them as they're kind of chasing down their opportunity uh, to be a pro. Just don't be discouraged, you know? There's so many people who will tell you that working in sports is so hard, that everyone wants to do it. And especially in my path, um, you know, all three of my siblings went to business school and, and kind of went that route. And so everyone, you know, kind of talked to me and my parents, friends and stuff as though this was some sort of like cute little thing that I wanted to do on the side. And eventually, you know, I'd go work for a bank or for an insurance company or whatever it is. But, um, there are jobs and it's, and it's about staying, staying upbeat and, and, and keeping belief in yourself and not being discouraged by all the people who will tell you that you need to find a real job. Um, because when I'm playing golf at, you know, on a Wednesday, uh, that, that feels pretty good to me. I think a lot of people with a real job would be pretty, pretty jealous of that. So. Well, you got two people who are jealous right here. So. <laughs> 
hand raised. Not 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 playing this week because I got a lot of Masters prep to do, and it's gotten cold cold in the uh, in the East Coast. But but yeah, no, it's it's pretty sweet. Yeah, well, we certainly uh, certainly appreciate you for coming on. It's been a lot of fun. Um, yeah, yeah love talking golf all the time, always. Yeah, anytime, boys. Yeah, really appreciate it. If you're ever in the Northern Virginia, D.C. area, let me know. We'll go hack it up. I'll find a course where you can break 70, and I'll try and break 100. All right, sounds like a plan to me. <laughs> thanks again, Daniel. Appreciate right, thanks, it. Thanks, fellas. See you later. Take care. That was our interview with Daniel Rappaport. Please give him a follow on Twitter at Daniel underscore Rappaport for all things golf. Uh, please give his podcast a listen at Local Knowledge. Um, certainly thank him for his time. And as always, please feel free to give our page, The Other Pros, a follow on Instagram at Other Pros. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns about the podcast, um, guest suggestions, please email us at theotherpros at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all next week. Thanks.